0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Superwomen. Today's guest is Claire Babineau-Fontenot, the CEO of Feeding America, the second largest charity in the United States with a nationwide network of 200 food banks and 60,000 meal pantries serving 46 million, 46 million, everybody, Americans annually. Claire, I'm so excited to talk to you today. Welcome to Superwomen.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Great. So will you tell me a little bit about your backstory, your history, how, and then your desire to start feeding people who need food? Yes,
1: absolutely. And I, I think that the only way for any of this to really make sense is to start in the beginning. I have a very unique family story. I am one of 108 children. My parents are in the National Adoption Hall of Fame it was a remarkable upbringing. One of the things that was so clear to me that I know is not clear to many, if not most Americans, even right now, but I've always known my whole life, is that there are people inside of this remarkable country who really struggled to find enough food to eat. I knew that my whole life. So when other people's moms were telling them, you better eat your food because there are hungry kids in Africa or China or whatever distant shore. My mom didn't ever have to tell that to us because we knew there are people facing hunger right here. I am also the granddaughter of sharecroppers on both sides. Neither of my parents had the opportunity to graduate from, from high school. So I started getting all of these remarkable opportunities like to graduate from high school, to graduate from undergrad. I went to law school. And then I went back to law school and got a second law degree. All of these things were things that really had uh, my family and my brothers and sisters, my mom and dad hadn't had the chance to do those things. So I availed myself of all of those remarkable opportunities, always knowing in the background that there was a lot of need out there. I dabbled to help. I served on boards. I volunteered at pantries. I'd heard of Feeding America. In fact, they were called... America's Second Harvest when I was a kid and my parents even used to have people from the community in need come to our house to pick up food that was being provided by America's Second Harvest. So I've known about it as well. And then I continued on this remarkable journey of mine. I became a lawyer. I worked as a lawyer for quite a while. I worked in big four accounting, got this dream job of working at Walmart. I became an executive at Walmart I'm moving along. And then in 2015, without any notice, I learned that I had cancer and then everything just slowed down. And I asked myself a question and the question was, what if the last thing that I ever got to do was the best thing I could ever do at Walmart? Would that be okay?" And my answer was no. So I started the process of leaving and um, it's just been extraordinary. I didn't know when I left that this opportunity would present itself. What I knew was that if I didn't leave, I would never allow myself to take advantage of an opportunity like this. So I took a big leap and I landed here and I just feel so privileged that I get the chance to do this every day.
0: Wow, that's incredible. I have so many questions about your journey. (laughs) How were you one of 108 kids that were adopted? Like, what is that life like? And were you all there at the same time? What was your housing situation?
1: So we were not all there at the same time. We didn't all live there at the okay. same time. Let okay. me put it that way. On average, there were usually about 16 or so of us living in the house at any moment and time. Okay. But we all converge upon that house at some moment. So my mother is now deceased and my father is, in fact, is is quite ill right now. So it's, and there's COVID, you know, they're all the reasons why we don't gather in the way that we traditionally would. But as you might imagine, just having my brothers and sisters, their kids, and some of us have, our kids have kids. All of us coming together at my parents' house was bigger than most people's family reunions. And that was just us. So yes, so we definitely came together and have come together as a big old family unit. But about 16 living there, at a time. So I'll give you a visual maybe that used to tickle one of my, my best friends. We were kids and she came over and she just loved it when it was mealtime at our house because she knew that they were going to, we're going to take out these pots that was, that covered two burners in order to accommodate everyone that was going to be fed out of those pots. And for some reason, she thought that was the height of comedy. So she'd come and she'd go, oh, I'll bet they're coming out with those big pots now, Claire where are those really big pots? Are they going to come out? And like, what? Why are you fast? But that's what it was like. Because so it was constant movement, a lot of energy. And for me, a deep feeling of gratitude because I, I've i had this awareness that uh, sometimes life deals people some pretty challenging cards. And then there are people like my mom and dad who find ways to step in and and to help. and And I want to be one of those people. Who steps in and helps so that's incredible
0: so you it sounds like you worked your ass off you had you know the opportunities that most in your in your elder you know previous generations did not have so yes. when you found out about the cancer diagnosis what went through your head that made you say i want my legacy to be more meaningful yeah
1: well I remembered, you know, it's, it's kind of, I don't know how many people in your audience have gone through one of those big events, but your life really kind of sort of does flash in front of your eyes. And, and I remembered what I thought I was going to do with my life. I knew I was going to be a lawyer. I, I discovered, I decided I was going to be, I declared emphatically to everyone who would listen that I was going to be a lawyer when I was a kid. But there's a certain kind of lawyer that I thought it was going to be. I didn't imagine it was going to be a tax lawyer. But as I said, I've often said that I I have a head for numbers and a heart for people. Right. So because I had a head for numbers, I kept gravitating toward things like tax and like accounting. But that heart piece, I hadn't found a, a really powerful way to connect those two together in the work I do today. I get to do that every day. But so I had this fan, this fantasy about what that meant to be a lawyer. And I was going to be a children's rights advocate. And doesn't that make sense? You got all those brothers and sisters. You're going to be a children's rights advocate. And it was like I was I was having that conversation that I've had. I've gone to conferences where they say, what would you say to your younger self? I was like having a conversation with my younger self. And I was asking, is that what you is that what this was for? Is that what you thought you were going to do? And it was in that reflection that I thought, no, that's not what I thought. But I'm still breathing. I get a chance to go do even more. And I'm trying to do even more.
0: Yeah. You know, I volunteered at a food pantry on the Upper West Side quite frequently before COVID. And we would make it part of our annual Christmas time giving back for the company. So my whole company would go. And then I took my family because they made it possible for kids to go because I wanted I wanted my kids to know they're lucky that they get food and that they get to have leftovers or leave leftovers, I should say. And then COVID hits and it sort of felt like everyone was spending for themselves, right? The toilet paper is gone from the shelves. You're buying food for your family. So tell me what that was like for families who suddenly they depended on these pantries, they depended on the work that you do. And then it's like, where's all the people?
1: Where's all the food? Most people in the country had no, would not have imagined that there were 35 million people who were food insecure before the pandemic. 35 million people. And that we are, our estimates suggest, and we already know that that number is going, is a lot higher today than it was before the pandemic. But I want to directly answer your question. As as we were looking at, at things unfold, your audience may not realize that a primary source of food for us would be those grocery stores. So they gave us what was left. Well, there was nothing left. Right. Those shelves were empty. So as their shelves were emptying out, we had significant increases in the number of people who were coming to us for help. We ordinarily rely upon a volunteer workforce, also of about two million people across the country, which is a beautiful thing. Well, our volunteers are inordinately over 65, and therefore they were of particular risk when it came to the virus. So we had, lot, and then there were breaks in the whole food system. So we had lots of things coming at us all at once. And when I say us, I really mean people facing hunger had lots of things coming at them and I consider myself a part of that community in in the work that I get to do. So there are lots of things coming from a lot of different directions. Yeah. So the first reflection was oh my goodness, right? Wow. There were it was it was tough and and it still is tough for a lot of people. But it didn't take very long for our network at least to pivot and to say, oh yeah, this is terrible. But then turn to, so what are we going to do about this?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Because it, it it won't be acceptable for all of these people who need it more than they used to even. Yeah. For us to not show up and deliver for them. So, so we changed our whole distribution model. We made it safer for the people that we serve to get access to the food. So low contact distributions. We told our volunteers who were at risk, look, this is not the moment for you to be out there putting yourself at greater risk. We're going to find other ways. We found other partners, like the National Guard came out across the country uh, to help and volunteer with us and other organizations like Team Rubicon did. So there have been so many silver linings in this big, ugly, gray cloud. And among them is the level of generosity and support that our network has felt throughout this pandemic has been extraordinary. And and I have the chance to interact directly with members of the public and with our members because I I fly around and drive around during the pandemic. And the people that I meet who say, oh, you're with Feeding America, there's something I want to tell you. And then they'll tell me their stories about 40 percent of the people who are turning up never before relied upon a charitable food system. Never. They'll tell me things like I used to volunteer at a pantry. And now I'm on the other side of that line. And I promise you, I will get back on my feet and I will repay this. I will pay it forward by being on the other side again. But I'm going to redouble my efforts when I get back on my feet are people who say we literally had nothing left. And then we heard that there was a distribution. Thank you so much. Tell the people who are helping you that what they're doing matters. So I get to do that on a regular basis. And it's so energizing. And as I said, it's just humbling that I get to do this all the time.
0: Yes. I think humble is a great word for it. I think when my family was there and when our company was there, whether it was wrapping gifts or, you know, telling someone you get one bag of rice, two meats, vegetables, and you're like, oh my gosh, this person has to make this food last for a week till they get to come back. And I just... I I highly recommend anyone who feels safe enough to go out and volunteer or give excess food, uh, please do it because you're looking into another human who doesn't have what you have and they need it. Right. And and they're in circumstances that they didn't necessarily anticipate. So I think it's incredible. And I don't know if you have one or two stories you want to share of some, maybe a woman you met that, that was in need and, maybe she lost her job or maybe she's working three jobs and she has kids and any, any stories you might want to share.
1: I'd love to. And, and if you'll indulge me before I do, there's one other quick thing that I want to want to say. There's an expression I've started using. I don't know if anyone else did before. If they did, please know, I'm not trying to take it. Um, I'd give an attribution if I had heard it, but it's that the giver receives mm-hmm. when we're in the middle of this pandemic and, and so many of us feel powerless to do anything about so much that's happening. This is a space where you can take control and you can know I am doing something that matters. Yes. And I believe that's part of the reason that we've had such this outpouring of support. It's, there's some power in this. Yes. There's a dynamic to, to what it means to give and what it means to know when you're investing in someone else's humanity that it gives some humanity to you. There's so much more that comes back to you has been my experience. So I encourage it for lots of reasons, but I'm sure that you would agree that the way that you personally feel. Yeah. um, And when you've provided that example for your children, knowing you're putting that kind of goodness into the world, I think it's just, it's just fabulous. But I have, I definitely have met people who have inspired me. I've met one lady that I that stands out for me, uh, Memorial Day, I was at a food distribution, and there was a lady who was riding in a little, maybe an Explorer, a little SUV, and she's off in the distance, and I was helping to manage the flow of the traffic, so she's a little bit farther from me, and she's going around, and all of a sudden, I see her put her window down and I see some kind of little thing coming out and I don't know what it is. I'm like, what on earth is that? And it just catches my attention. And it's an American flag. And she's waving the American flag and she starts honking her horn because I mentioned earlier that in the gap that's been uh, created by so many of our volunteers not being able to come out safely, the National Guard has been so present in so many different places. And she's waving that flag because she saw the members of the Guard out there and she wanted them to know how much she appreciated them. And she had already made a sign that said, thank you. And she's waving her flag and she's got her sign on her windshield. And it it just reminded me of what's great about this country, um, of how much respect and admiration I have for people who serve in the military or the National Guard, the way that they step up. And also that in that moment, that pure purity of that gratitude on so many different levels was something that was infectious for me. So that was one story. Another would be of a little girl who had gone to a distribution and we're giving out fresh fruit. And her mom and and her siblings, there was a, a box, if you will, that had fruit in it, et cetera. And she looks over and she asked if she can have one of those And she points out and she's pointing to a watermelon and the people at the food bank are like, okay, well, we'll make sure that the box has watermelon in it. It's got, you see, there's one in there and it's got a lot of fresh fruit in there. <laughs> she's like, no, no, I want a watermelon. So they gave her this watermelon and she took it and she like held it the way a child holds a doll, a favorite doll. That look of satisfaction that she had on her face, and gratitude that she had on her face for getting something that so many of us take for granted, is something I will also remember. And there are countless. I've been to hundreds of distributions across the country, and I've I've had so many moments like that.
0: Incredible. I think when you look at the face of those children, they didn't ask for this situation. They didn't, you know, cause the situation. And your heart just melts and you're like, oh, my God, can I can I give you more? At least that's my reaction when I've been there and seen the children.
1: And most people most people feel that way. And you're you're absolutely right. I do think there's an element in the country where we ask ourselves, "Yeah, what got you there? Why is it that you need help? I think one of the breakthroughs for the anti-hunger movement during COVID is that I think a lot of people couldn't imagine themselves being in one of those lines. Yeah. And then when all of a sudden out of the blue, you can't go to work because they shut it down. Right. You didn't shut it down. (laughs) Something else that you didn't control, shut it down. Yeah. And you suddenly have no job. You're going to find a way to feed your family. Yeah. And most of the people who are in those lines are people who are parts of families that include little kids and they're desperate to get food to their family. So I think that concept of like I, I call it earned hunger that it starts to chip away at the notion of earned hunger when people start recognizing that this could be me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it might actually be my neighbor. Right. This could be any of us. So
0: so I have a question that maybe you well obviously I'm sure you know the answer to, but I see an inordinate amount of waste just in New York City. If I'm on if I'm going to a set put on by a magazine, there's catering at the end of the day, that catering gets tossed in the trash, right? And it's not food that's contaminated. Then I had a friend and she would go around to bodegas at night at midnight when they throw out, they just throw out all the stale bread, right? It's not even stale. Let me just say day old bread. And she used to pick it up in her van and do delivery trucks to food pantries. And then I see, you know, whether it's, uh, restaurants, right? the food that isn't used that night. Now, why isn't there a connection between all these places? Because I feel like New York City could be fed alone if you connected just those three things.
1: Yes. So the answer is there's no good answer to yes. that question, which is it should not be so. Right. <laughs> it should not be so. And in fact, I'll, I'll give you a quick little history of food banking, if you don't mind. Yeah. Our founder, a guy by the name of John Ben Hingle, he he started food bank, the whole food bank system was started by our founder. And he was in Phoenix, Arizona, and he noticed that there were these there was this lady and she was she seemed to be pretty well fed. Her kids seemed to be doing okay and she had quite a few children. And he didn't understand how was it that she was getting access to food. And she he learned and she told him that, well, actually I'm going behind this store, and all of these stores are dumping their their good food into this ditch back there. And I'm going back there and I'm getting the food. Uh, And he said, oh, wow. So it's kind of like a bank of food. And she said, yeah. And that's how he came up with the name. And that's how it all started. Feeding America and our network of 200 members, 60,000 agency partners, we're actually the largest food waste recovery organization in the United States. But we haven't yet by ourselves, we can't fill that gap in, but with the right help, we can. So we had a statistic I talked about pre-pandemic, 72 billion pounds of perfectly edible food was going to landfills, not counting household waste. So the kind of waste you're talking about, while 35 million people were food insecure. That's crazy. I agree. So the good news is we can solve this. The bad news is we haven't solved it yet. Right. (laughs) Right. But the good news is we can. And I think we're starting to catch up with some of it. And as I said, our our network certainly works hard at it. But we have so many brilliant, innovative, creative people in this country. Surely we can open up tables, convene people. And when we decide that we will solve it, we will solve it because it's solvable. Right. It's absolutely solvable. So I'm glad you're frustrated.
0: I am frustrated because I see it getting thrown out and I'm like, oh, my God, why? Why is that happening? And and she, my friend even had an idea, you know, get Uber to just do a nightly run, pay drivers as a charitable act to pick up all the bread that's being thrown out. You know, like she was she was working hard at it. And I and I really respect her for that.
1: Yeah. And by the way, we partner with Uber and we partner with DoorDash. Yeah. And during this pandemic, we have brand new Partners during this pandemic who have been at the table with us, thinking about those very same questions. What are the ways that we can mobilize our resources toward this good? One of the unique things about addressing an issue so basic as food insecurity is it's called basic because it's foundational, right? Almost every good thing that can happen to a human or to a society starts with people having consistent, predictable access to a nutritious mix of food. It all starts there. It's the building block for everything else that's good. So there's so many win, 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 wins in this space. So if you care about the climate or you don't call it climate change, you say you don't like to see waste or you care about what's happening in terms of people's need for access to medical care, or if you care about education, whatever it is that you care about, I encourage you to be a part of this work because this work is foundational to all of that.
0: Yeah. So I'd love to turn to you personally for a bit. Where do you find your source of optimism? Because Mm -hmm. some people could be looking at the road ahead and feel like, oh my gosh, there's still people hungry. I say you can go to the dark side. Throughout this pandemic, I've chosen to see the silver linings. But where do you get that source of optimism from?
1: Yeah, I have so many examples throughout the course of my life. I'm, I'm a living example of goodness, of how people can invest in other people. So many people have invested in me throughout my whole life. Um, I've witnessed how powerful human beings are and how people, I mentioned my parents, for instance. Now think about that. Their parents didn't get to go to, to school. My mother's first language wasn't even English. And here they have 108 kids, really, without high school diplomas. So I came up in an environment that was a relatively low, if not no excuse environment. So when I'm saying, oh, but I can't do blah, blah, blah. And then I'm thinking, wait a minute, my mama didn't say she couldn't. And look at what she did. Or my daddy didn't say he couldn't. And look at what he did. Or I have so many siblings who struggle with so many forms of capacity challenges and who, despite all of it, are high functioning, contributing members of our society. So my whole life, I've seen all of these rich examples of what people, what, what can be done, what can be achieved. So I think that's part of it. And, and now inside of this work, well, let me back up one more step. I mentioned I have a head for numbers and a heart for people. Well, the math works in favor of us solving this, right? So, 72 billion pounds of waste, 35 million people food insecure, that math tells me we can match that stuff up better and and it's solvable. So I don't tend to engage in exercises of futility, but I'm willing to engage in stuff that's tough. And this is hard because there's systemic barriers that need to be overcome. But I have so many things that inspire me. And I mentioned two of the people, for instance, but Throughout this pandemic, when others I have felt counted myself fortunate that as others were frustrated by, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? I wake up in the morning and I go get to be a part of some stuff that's getting done. And I get to see little kids with watermelon uh, cradling a watermelon. And I get to know I'm a part of that and that they're certainly worth the fight. And I'm I'm not giving up for sure.
0: I can tell that about you. You're not someone that gives up for sure. No. So, you've had incredible success. I hate the term climbing the corporate ladder, but you've ascended the corporate ladder. Do you have any learnings you can share about just how you achieved that success, how you maybe pushed past barriers, or as a woman, as a woman of color, you know, running into things? And how did you just say, I'm still, I'm still going to excel?
1: Well, I I can tell you one of the things, one of the breakthroughs uh, for me in my career was when i asked myself so why why would that person want me to win why would that person on the side of me or that boss want me to win and and i found that the most compelling answer to that question was because when i win they win too and i've built a career off of the concept that i will never win alone i will never win alone so when other people did things good things and i i saw the power of their work other women other people of color and sometimes people are neither women who are neither women are people of color but when i witnessed the good that they did i worked hard for them too right so i'd go out and make certain that i communicated to to the powers that be when my peers did great things or when my subordinates did th- great things and i think they then in turn recognize that i'm a person who knows in my bones that when we work together it's better together so and i was told by corporate america that it doesn't work that way i was told i was a uh, i worked and in a major law firm and there i was told it doesn't work that way i worked in big four accounting i was told it doesn't work that way i managed to matriculate up in every single one of those environments And I did it exactly that way in every one of them. Yes, it does work that way. Yes, it most certainly does. So there's more than one way to get there, to be sure. But you don't have to sacrifice your morals. You don't have to have, you know, those sharp elbows. Those things are not necessary. But the other point that I would make that I thought I think has been really, really transformational for me, it happened when I was over at Walmart and it was the first time in my whole career that I was being asked to do something where I didn't think I was the very best qualified person to do it. The job they hired me for was one I prepared 16 years to go do, right? Everything I did built up to that. And then I get to Walmart and they start changing my responsibilities. So I kept doubling my team. Like every four months I had doubled my team until I found myself, instead of being in that position that was very comfortable for me, which is, oh yeah, I've been training, this, I found myself in a position where I'm being asked to do something that I'd never done before, that the majority of the stuff that I was doing and what it forced me to do, because I'm not going to quit, what it forced me to do was to reconcile within myself that I'm not everything. And that was just freeing for me, was to truly accept I am not built to do all things. I can't do all things. So the little tag that I came up with for myself was I'm not everything, but I'm really something. So I figured out, what are my actual strengths? Let me find people who have strengths that I don't have. Let me build teams of people that are truly diverse and truly inclusive that are built on an honest assessment of what each of us can can contribute as individuals and how working putting it all together how it works out for the good. So every place I've ever been, when I got there, it was less diverse than once I arrived. Often I'm the one that helped to make it more diverse initially. Uh, And then over time, it became both more diverse and more inclusive. And that's been my secret sauce. It has been my secret sauce every place. And here at Beating America, it's something I bring here again. I start out by saying, I'm not everything, thank goodness. These 200 members don't need me to be a food banker. And I tell them from time to time, you do remember what I used to do. So I used to be the executive vice president of finance at Walmart. Don't expect me to know everything there is to know about being a food banker. But the good news is, you know, everything there is to to know about being a food banker. You don't need me to know that. There's some other stuff I think I could help with, though. I believe I can. And I think I am so.
0: I love that you say that because so many people try to be everything, or they're afraid to admit their weaknesses. And you know, when people say, "Oh, how do you do it?" I'm like, "Cause I have really good people that know their shit, and yeah. it's me to do what I do best." You know, I have design team working right now on bags, so I can be here interviewing you or whatever the example is. I think sometimes people can feel like if they let go of it they're a failure, or if they let go of it, then they don't get to say they did it. But sometimes I think letting go of those things that you're not the best at are the most freeing because someone's great at it far better than you and it allows everyone to, to rise.
1: I completely agree with what you just said. And, and I don't wanna come off as if I've always known this or I've always felt this. Yeah, I've been so intimidated in so many environments Being a person first generation to graduate from high school, I'm sitting in law school thinking, walking in the door thinking, okay, so everyone else here is going to be absolutely brilliant. And they've probably got dads and grandfathers and great grandmothers who were lawyers. And and here I am, I'm going to be in the room with all of these brilliant people. Um, So I've certainly struggled, but it really came to a head at Walmart when, while I told you the good side of that story. The other side of it was that for the first six months that I was the chief tax officer at Walmart, I was acting like I was the previous chief tax officer at Walmart. We're very different human beings. And I was trying to to be like him the whole time. And it wasn't working. I was failing miserably in that job. And I was going into my mid-year eval six months into that job. I spoke to my husband. It should be canonized for sainthood. We've been together for 32 years and counting. But I remember so well calling my husband and I'm going into this meeting and I was explaining to him how I was going to explain to my boss that the reason it was bad was because this person did this and that other person did that to me. And then I had my whole list of everybody who's conspiring against me. And while all of that might've been true, my husband said, excuse me, And I said, yeah. He said, "Uh, may I speak to Claire Babineau Fondo, please? And when he said that, I'll never forget it. I I thought, yeah, who am I? (laughs) He said, go be you. Everything will be better than fine. And I went into that meeting with a whole different attitude and I went in and I told my boss I'm failing. Here's why I think I'm failing. I'm going to need your help because I've got to tell you. I'm really not good at being a middle-aged white man from Alabama. It's really not working. (laughs) It's really not working. He's a great guy, but I'm not going to be him. But I'll bet you if I work hard and nobody's going to work harder than me, I bet you when I work hard at it, I'm going to find a path to value being me. And we're going to have to hire some people. And we're going to have to leverage some of the people we already have who are really good at the stuff that I am not built to do. And he agreed with me. And then 13 years later, when I was leaving Walmart, I was reflecting on a remarkable, remarkable career that I'm sure would have ended a lot sooner had I continued to pretend to be something that I wasn't. And it's leveraging who who I am that helped me to, to move in and around inside of that organization. And I became the executive vice president of finance uh, first time in the company's history that there was a person of color who was an officer in the finance organization was when I was hired in 2004. So therefore every other position that I occupied were a bunch of first inside of, of the organization. And then I looked back and I thought, and wait a minute, that's fortune one. That's pretty good. That's pretty good.
0: That's incredible. I know why cuz you're incredible and I'm so inspired by you and your positivity, your optimism. I think I think you're fantastic. Okay, everyone, before we jump back into this week's episode, I want to take a second to remind you that my new book Fearless: The New Rules for Unlocking Creativity, Courage, and Success is available for pre-order right now. I am so excited to share this with you. It is my journey of the last 15 years where I had to break the rules, throw them out, rewrite them to achieve success. And I'm sharing this all with you. If you love this podcast, you will love this book. You're going to learn how to take on new challenges, overcome fear, and break barriers in order to reach your goals. You can pre-order it wherever books are sold. And if you email your receipt to fearless at Rebecca Minkoff.com, you get the cost of the book as a credit on my site. So it's a win win. So what are you going to do? Pre-order my book now, Fearless, wherever books are sold. So I like to end my podcast with two questions. I think you already shared potentially what we'd be surprised to know about you because I had no idea you were one of 108 children. But is there anything (laughs) else we would be surprised to know about you?
1: Does it have to be serious?
0: No, I I often tell very embarrassing things. And I'll share with you right now that my three year old, I weaned him when he was two. And I'm not sure what's going on in his world right now. But he like wants his booby back. And so he's like, He's like relactating me right now, and it's working. <laughs> I have a little boy who could just pull at my shirt, and I did. This is not what I envisioned
1: a three-year-old doing. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, I'll give you. I'll, I will. I will feed off of what you just said. Okay. Right. Okay. So few people know this about me. Okay. So I was a. I'm a lawyer by training. You know that part, and. I had the opportunity to litigate a case I was really inexperienced and young lawyer. And I was working at the Louisiana Department of Revenue and I had the opportunity to litigate a huge case. It was a constitutional case, right? A case on a constitutional question, which is not usually what you get to do. And this case is gonna go to the Supreme Court and I know that it will, and I'm going to litigate that case. So I'm good. I have a, a blue pinstripe suit with a white whisket. I'm feeling good. I go into the courtroom. I argue my case. I come out of the courtroom. I'm in the lobby. I'm talking to my my friends and colleagues who were in the room with me. I said, how do you think it went? They're saying it was good. I said, oh, I felt good. I had the energy for it. I'm talking. And then I look down. And I'm like, oh, no, tell me it's not true. I had spit up on my lapel oh, throughout no. that whole argument. I had spit <laughs> up on my lapel and I had to take a breath and then I went, "Yeah, but wasn't that good?" And, and I kept on going. And I have not publicly or even semi-publicly spoken to the fact that uh I had, yeah, in probably the most significant litigation that I ever did in my career. I did it with spit up on my lapel. Love it. So that would definitely be one of them.
0: Maybe it was a good luck charm.
1: Maybe so. He was for sure.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. My next and last question is, is there advice that you have either learned from your, you know, career, all of your work or someone gave to you that you proved that proved invaluable in your journey that you want to share?
1: Yes. Imagine I'm in a situation at a company and I've decided that I don't like somebody at the company. Right. And I just don't like the person, the way that person is doing that person's job, blah, 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 blah. So I went to one of my mentors who I thought didn't like that same person that I didn't care for. Right. So I just knew what I was going to get. Right. So I start saying, Oh, he does this and this and this, and I don't like the way he does that and blah, blah, blah. blah. What do you think? And, uh, My mentor did the opposite of what I expected, which is advice I hold on to to this day. He said, you are putting your energy in all the wrong places. I said, what? This is the part where you say, yeah, I don't like him either. Right? He said, your energy is in the wrong place. He said, why did you put your energy in understanding who that person is rather than putting your energy in understanding who the person is not? Understand what winning means for that person, because the person you're talking about is actually in a position where he could either be very helpful or very hurtful to your career. So what does winning look like for him? And then ask yourself, without giving up who you are authentically, are there ways that you can help him to win? And if so, do it. He said, but all of this other stuff, uh, who's that going to help? yeah, who's that gonna help? that we all agree that he's not the best ever, et cetera. so I that I've used a lot. I've asked myself in so many organizations, what does winning mean for the other people? I know what m- winning means for me, right? But what does winning mean for the other people, especially for some of the people who feel like they're kind of hard uh, to work with. And then most of the time, not always, but most of the time, when I put my energy on that, And instead of trying to remake that person, if I accept who that person, understand who the person is and accept who that person is, I can usually come up with ways to win with that person. Again, there are exceptions, but throughout my career, I found lots of ways to win with people who on the surface, you might think there is no way. And that was really, really important advice because I I really, I was in fact focused on the wrong stuff. I wanted to be comforted by excuses for failure with that person rather than pivoting to deciding I was going to do everything I could to win rather than feel good about failing.
0: I love that. I think that's so powerful. It reminds me of this, this philosopher that I read that basically was like, just because you acknowledge someone, if they say something doesn't mean you agree with them. It means I've heard what you said. And I think that some people feel the need uh, if there is someone they don't agree with, or they don't like, or whatever, that if they acknowledge them, they're somehow agreeing to whatever that person says or feels, or that that person's now wrong. But what you're doing is, it's like, yes. I heard you. Doesn't mean I agree. But you don't even have to say yes. you don't agree. Just I heard you.
1: Yeah, and that's that. That's hard too, right? Oh, it's, right. Hard it's hard to not say. It's hard. And oh, by the way, you're wrong. <laughs> I'm. I disagree. I'm right. You're wrong. Yeah. But I've, I've usually learned something from that person, too, by the way. And yeah. I actually really open both of my ears. My mom used to tell me that there's a reason that I have one mouth and two ears. And uh, I should double up on the ear, on the hearing, the listening part. Yeah. And he, she's right. She's right. I've learned. I've learned a lot yeah. by doing that, too.
0: You're incredible. So how can people support Feeding America? What can they do wherever
1: they are? Go to feedingamerica.org. That's the best place to start. There, you can become educated about what's actually happening with food insecurity across the country. Our footprint is that we are in every county, and I like to say parish because my last name is Babineau no, no, I'm from Louisiana. Every county and every parish in the country that has food insecurity in it, we're there. So that means we're everywhere because there is not one, one, not one county in this whole country that does not have a challenge around food insecurity, even the richest ones. So if you go to feedingamerica.org, you can find out more about what's happening. If you have the ability to provide funds or to provide time or to provide food, please do, if you can. If you want to do that at a national level, which is the office that I serve in, um, we then do an assessment of where the most acute needs are across the country, and we make certain that the resources get to where the most acute needs are. If you instead have a special affinity for a particular place, we've got a food bank locator. All you have to do is put in the zip code of the place that you care the most about. It could be your hometown, where you went to college or where you live now. And what will pop up will be a food bank that's serving that specific community. Reach out to that food bank, ask them, what do you need? How can I help? They'll be prepared to answer that question for you. But then another really important thing is if you need help, we are built for you. We're here to help you. There's a lot of stigma attached with needing help. This is a place where we try our best to provide not only food, but dignity inside of the service of that food. If you need us, reach out to feedingamerica.org. Let us know that you do, and we'll do everything that we can to help you too.
0: Thank you for your heart and what you do and your time today. I'm beyond inspired. And if you're listening, go to feedingamerica.org and uh, do what you can. Anything counts. So it'll all be put to good use. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, everybody. And don't forget to head over to RebeccaMinkoff.com. Show your love and support for the brand. Buy something for yourself. Buy something for another. And also don't forget to try my new fragrance. Again, it is available at all Nordstrom Macy's scentbirds and birch boxes as well as our site.